0: Let's turn in our um, Bibles to Micah. Now, I know that we haven't been doing this in the uh, evenings, but I want us to see if we can this, more, this evening um, give honor to God's Holy Word and we'll stand as we read uh, this, just this first few verses of, of Micah. Let's look at Micah 1 through 7. This is God's holy and infallible word. The word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley and will lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be smashed and all of her earrings will be burned with fire and all of her images I will make desolate. For she collected them from a harlot's earnings and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. Let's pray. Beloved Father, we ask that you would help by your Holy Spirit, for us to grasp and to understand this prophecy that you have given unto your servant Micah. Help us to grasp and understand and to receive and to grow in faith by means of this your holy word, for we ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you might have been wondering about my title for this message. God's coming to judge. Now, if you ask the question, is God coming to judge? Yes, he is coming to judge. But in regard to this particular section of Scripture, Micah 1, verses 1 through 7, you might say, well, is Kevin going to interpret Micah 1, 1 through 7, in reference to the final judgment? Not... Really, because that's not exactly what this particular passage is about. This is about a judgment or a judgment event that has already come to pass. Now, in today's text, we can learn a great deal about God and God's dealings with sinners in the fashion of Him being a holy and righteous God. But before we go to those lessons, I want us to learn a little bit more about Micah, who was Micah? He's not very well known. Uh, verse 1 says that uh, in this book of prophecy, the word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Uh, it's testified also in, in uh, the book, the, the prophecy of Jeremiah that he, he prophesied during this time. But he, uh, he, it says he's from a place called Morsheth. Now, if you have a Bible atlas or maybe even a different translation, you might find this word, Mersha. It's, it's the same place, but just a different name. It's, it's kind of one of those places that's not very well known. It's kind of like telling somebody you're from Grand Prairie, Louisiana. Even the people in Louisiana have no idea where that is. It's kind of the same thing, uh, Morsha, Morshef. It's a, a small town north and east of Lakeish. You're probably more familiar with Lakeish. But what we can tell from this prophecy is that it happened during the time or during the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, you remember a very famous prophecy concerning Hezekiah when he was ill, and that was with the prophet Isaiah. So this prophet was a contemporary of Isaiah, but also prophesied during two kings that came Before Hezekiah as well Jotham and Ahaz we'll look a little bit more in some details of some of the the deeds of uh, especially one of the more notorious uh, men named Ahaz as we look at today's text we'll look at it in two main points Um, the judgment against Samaria and Jerusalem is the first point God's judgment against Samaria and Jerusalem and then secondly we'll look at God's reasons for judgment And let's look at this first point, Judgment Against Samaria and Jerusalem, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth and all that it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you the Lord, from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Now, I've heard of it before. Of maybe, it's a, maybe, it's, maybe parents use this kind of phraseology. You don't want me to come down from, from out of the car or you don't want me to have to come down there because if I come down there you're going to get it well here's God coming down and they and they're going to get it but someone might argue from this section that the judgment of this the scope of this judgment is far greater than the promised land because it says here he will come down and tread on the high places of the earth now they might say, well, that sounds like it's not just in the promised land. That's a that's a maybe it's a worldwide judgment of some sort. But keep in mind when you see a prophecy like this, you must let key verses drive the prophecy. Who is the prophecy for? Verse 1 says that it is a prophecy of the Lord. Who is it for? Concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. That has to be the driving force of the driving verse of this prophecy. Now, some Christians like to think that the Bible does not have figurative language. But clearly, here is a section that has some figurative language here in verse 4. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. Now, people think, well, any prophecy that talks about the mountains melting, that's the end of the world, isn't it? Because, you know, the New Testament does say he's going to cleanse the world by fire and there'll be great heat and, you know, it'll consume the whole world. But keep in mind that this language is used in reference to what's going on with Samaria and Jerusalem. Here's a couple of other places where we have similar language. Psalm 97.5 in your outline there. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. And that's a passage used to describe how the Lord reigns. It's not talking about the end of the world. Another one, this is the key one here, is Nahum 1 verse 5. It uses even more, I would say, vigorous, intense language concerning the destruction of Nineveh. Mountains quake because of him. That's of God, because of God. And the hills dissolve. And indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the, uh, the world and all its inhabitants in it. Now... If if you're familiar with Nineveh and the history of Nineveh, Jonah went to Nineveh and preached to Nineveh, and God was intent on destroying Nineveh, but then, well, he he, he threatened to destroy Nineveh, but then Jonah preached, and he preached a message to them, and they repented in dust and ashes, and God saw their repentance, and he spared them. Well, this is far, far later in history, Because maybe they repented for a time, but they did not turn from their wicked ways. And later on, uh, under the prophecy of Nahum, God did call about the destruction of Nineveh. And Nineveh was utterly destroyed. Um, uh, That language there of the earth quaking, it's as if the whole earth swallowed them up. In history... Uh, I don't know of any Ninevites um, in any history after, uh, in this particular time. Maybe you might have some descendants of them, but Ninevites, as far as a people group, as far as a nation, they're gone. It's as if the earth swallowed them up. The earth the mountains quaked, they were all swallowed up and gone. So yes, the, the language of the earth being upheaved, the mountains quaking and the hills dissolving, it's in reference to the destruction of a people. And yes, it's figurative. Much of the book of Revelation uses similar language as well. You might say, oh, well, it's talking about the whole end of the world. Well, it's really talking about God destroying Jerusalem in 70 AD, a lot of it. Not the end of the book. The end of the book is still future, talking about the great throne of judgment, the new Jerusalem, all that stuff still hasn't happened yet. The final battle, all of that is still yet future. But you can't interpret Scripture unless you're familiar with how Scripture uses certain language. And here, there are some figurative uses. Now, when you have a field, and it's full of weeds, and you can't grow any grain or any vegetation, if you have a a tractor and with a good plow, the best plan of action is just you plow it under, and you start over. That's what happens here in this particular passage. Look at verse 6. God says, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley and will lay bare her foundations. Um, It's interesting that... um, if you talk about bare foundations, if, you, if you're in Louisiana and you see some, some hurricanes passing through, sometimes all that's left from a hurricane is a bare foundation. The whole building is gone. The home or the business is just totally wiped out. All you have left is a bare foundation. That's what happened here. But more than that, God was going to start over. He plowed it under and he was going to start over and he was going to plant anew. Uh, it's interesting that, like, uh, when we do have pagan kings who go in and take the people captive, they go and they take all of the men and most of the women, uh, the, especially the useful, the more useful people, and they take them back into captivity. Uh, and what happens is they leave the poor to tend the land and to farm the land. Uh, they'd rather do that than let it get taken over by wild animals. So, in in a sense, it did happen in history that these areas were just torn down and made farmland again, planting places for vineyards and more. Let's look next at this, why God did this. Why did God bring this great judgment? Why did he wipe them out, leaving only a foundation? God's reasons for judgment. Let's look at verse 5. For all this is for the rebellion of Jacob, And for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? God's anger over these people first began with Solomon. Solomon began his ministry well, I mean, his service well. He wasn't a minister, he was a king, but he began his service as king well for a time. But then later on in in his older age, he loved many foreign women. And by loving many foreign women, he was enticed by these women to build them high places of worship. And not only did he build these places for his wives, he actually participated in the worship of foreign pagan gods with little g. And God warned him in a dream to repent and he still didn't repent. And then God brought forth judgment. The judgment was that God was going to v- divide the kingdom and he was going to take it and give some of the kingdom or at least half of the kingdom to one of the Solomon's servants named Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. We're not going to turn there, but we're going to go over some of the history. Uh, that's found in First Kings 11. Um, there's no more notorious person, I believe, in the whole Bible than Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. If you go through the Bible, you probably hear that over and over again. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. Uh, God remembers him, and remembers him not for good, but for, uh, for judgment, because he was a terrible, wicked man. And uh, what he did was, after the division of the two kingdoms, you had Israel in the northern kingdom, and you had Judah in the southern kingdom, and there was a, there was a problem because there was only one place of worship and that was the holy temple and where was the holy temple in Jerusalem in Judah so if the people go from Israel the land of Israel the northern kingdom and they go they go and they worship down in in with among the land of Judah they might say man well, our our place doesn't have a temple like this i wish we had a place to worship and Jeroboam started thinking, well, if we, give, if we give the people of Israel a place to worship, they won't have to go down to Jerusalem, and we'll keep them in our kingdom. So what did he do? He made two golden calves, one golden calf in Bethel, and one in Dan. And uh, with a very sick, demented mind and a wicked heart, he said, Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. So Israel fell into wickedness and sin far uh, worse than did Judah, but then Judah didn't lag too far behind. Um, uh, This idolatry was going on in the northern kingdom, but then the people of Judah also practiced idolatry on and off because they had some good kings, some bad kings. Um, Remember back, if you look again at verse 1, it says that this prophecy came about during the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Let's take a look at a little bit of those, those kings. Um, Ahaz, according to 2 Kings 16, made his son pass through the fire. He's a king of Judah. He made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. That's found in Second Kings 16. What's amazing is that Ahaz was such an evil, wicked man. How did he have a son like Hezekiah, who was an upright king? I don't know, maybe Hezekiah was very thankful he wasn't put in the fire like one of his brothers. Um, but he maybe he was thankful for that and he, he ended up repenting of his sin and turning to the Lord. Uh, that's a little bit of, we don't understand that whole situation, but I'm sure he was happy that he wasn't thrown in the fire. Um, but then Hezekiah was an upright king. He was told of a coming judgment and there were, um, that his life would be shortened and he repented. He mourned before the Lord, he wept before the Lord, and God spared his life and gave him more years of life. But then after Hezekiah, Hezekiah has a wicked son named Manasseh. Later on we have other kings who were good, but then it does get far worse. Uh, Josiah was a a godly king, but after Josiah, he was probably the last of the godly kings after Hezekiah, and then the rest was just total wicked. Uh, And then God then took away Jerusalem. Why study all this? Why study these minor prophets? Why study God's judgment upon people who are long past us? This judgment that is foretold here already has come to pass. God did judge both Samaria and uh, Jerusalem. Paul did describe why God gave discipline to his people. And he described why God disciplined his people during that wilderness wandering. And I want us to look there at first, we'll keep our place in Micah, but we want to turn to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, starting at 1. Now I know this is pertaining to God's discipline of uh, the people during their wil- their wandering in the wilderness, but it also pertains to this text as well. Look at uh, verse one of chapter ten of First Corinthians. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us. Now remember, when we read The judgment given under Micah, these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Uh, might as well read verse 12 too. L- Therefore let him who thinks He stands, take heed that he does not fall. If God did it to Samaria and to Jerusalem for idol worship, if you have a Christian person who's embraced the Lord Jesus Christ with a credible profession of faith, yet later on turns from his faith and goes and serves idols and worships idols, He will not be spared either. They worshiped in uh, Micah one verse seven. They worshiped idols. Destruction came upon them who committed idolatry and what we call spiritual harlotry in Israel and Judah. Look at Micah one seven. All of her idols will be smashed. All of her earrings will be burned with fire and all of her images I will make desolate for she collected them from a harlot's earnings and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. So these people worshipped idols rather than the God of heaven who delivered them. God used idol worships idol worshipers, to judge them. God used idol-worshiping pagan kings and nations to come in and to take them away and to take them to a place where they were far removed from the means of grace. No more access to the temple, no more privileges of uh, of the holy sacrifices, no more Day of Atonement, no more uh, assurance of pardon or benediction from uh, the priest because they were taken into a captive City. In a similar fashion, Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, talks about those churches who do not repent, God will take away their lampstand. He judges those churches by removing them where there's no longer a means of grace in that community. God did not spare Israel nor Judah from great destruction. He did not spare them from their oppressive captivity. And God will not spare you if you persist in idolatry and unrepentant sin. Turn from your sin and turn from your wickedness. I love this, how John the Baptist said this. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's, it's not important that someone just has a profession of faith. You have to have a life of faith. And that life of faith is demonstrated by a life of living in a way that is repentant. A life that is living in a, in a way that is pleasing to God. Putting God first. As we mentioned this morning, God being your greatest treasure and not the things of this world. Let's pray together. We thank you, our beloved Father, that you have given us your Holy Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die for sinners such as us. And we do pray that you would forgive us for so often the many ways in which we have embraced the things of this world, that we have put them first above you, We do pray that you would make Jesus Christ our greatest treasure, that we would truly embrace him and cling to him with all that we have and all that we are. We thank you that Jesus died for our sins, and we do pray that you would help us to live for him as a living and holy sacrifice before you. For we ask all these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. For our closing hymn, I want us to turn to uh, 533. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way.